Today's scripture reading is taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. A little bit of a background. Jesus of Nazareth has begun his ministry, his public teaching and preaching ministry after his cousin John the Baptist was put in prison. I'll begin in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The word of God. What does it cost someone to become a Christian? What does being a Christian continually cost somebody? What, what does Jesus require of his followers? In 1997, I was a little bit more than halfway through my college career. I was a young Christian, and I began to discover what the cost of discipleship was, specifically what following Jesus meant for me, what it would cost me, really cost me, beyond saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, um, what it would really cost me to follow Jesus. I discovered that I was going to have to surrender my ambition to become a successful musician, uh, performer, composer, recording artist. It's not that I discovered I had to give up music or songwriting or recording or performing or all those things that I loved. I, w I didn't feel like I had to give up those things. I discovered I had to give up my ambition to define myself as that. I'll talk a bit more about that in a little while. But for me, it was a huge loss. At that point in my life, that was a huge loss for me. It was a worthy one, but it was huge. So what have you lost in following Jesus? As you've been walking with Jesus as his disciple, what, have, what has it cost you? If you're not a Christian, what might it cost you to follow Jesus and become a Christian? I hope you will see today that following Jesus is, it's costly. It is. But he promises to give us immeasurably more than we lose. You know, God's calling on our lives is ironic have you ever noticed there's an irony to the situation when you discover that Jesus is calling you to follow him? What I mean by irony is there's, there's something unexpected about God reaching out to you and saying, hey, I want you to be about my business. I want you to follow me. Now, these guys in the passage, they're, wait for it, fishermen. They're, they're fishermen. Now, when you were in gym class growing up and you had to pick teams for dodgeball, 
I know they don't let kids play dodgeball anymore. That's really sad. But when you had to pick dodge, you know, dodgeball teams or soccer teams or volleyball or badminton, whatever it was, who were the first people to be picked? The best athletes were always the first people to be picked. Okay? If you're a musician, if you're putting a band together or an orchestra or you're auditioning, the people holding the auditions, who are they looking for? They're looking for the best musicians, right? So Jesus doesn't go out looking for religious professionals. He doesn't go out looking for the people who were most theologically and religiously qualified to learn from him on his quest to tell people about the kingdom of God. Simon, by the way, Simon is Peter. We talked earlier, scholars believe Mark's gospel is really written from Peter's perspective. That's a big possibility. Simon is Peter, and that'll be clarified later on in the story. So Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, they were watermen. Think of guys who catch crabs for a living in the Chesapeake Bay. That's who these guys were. Now, they were good businessmen. They, they, weren't, they weren't schleps. They, they weren't incompetence. These, these were crafty, shrewd good business people. This is the Sea of Galilee. It was a teeming fish market. The Sea of Galilee market competed with the larger Mediterranean fishing market. So if you're going to make it in Galilee, you kind of had to be good at what you were doing. So these, these are guys that aren't starving, okay? They're doing well in their occupation. But it's ironic that Jesus, the Messiah, would call them, would call fishermen as his first disciples, as he's about to change the world. It, um, it was ironic that, it is, it is ironic that I'm a pastor. If you don't know me, you know me well now, but if you knew me years ago and decades ago, it is, it is funny and humorous that I'm a pastor. I would say about three times, that time in my life, mid, mid-90s, when I was in college, about three people in one year said to me, hey, have you ever considered maybe being a pastor? You ever thought about, like, ministry sort of a thing? Um, but they wouldn't say that. I was worshiping in charismatic circles at the time, and so they would say, you know, the Lord's put an anointing on you. Have you ever thought about ministry? And so I would outwardly say, oh, I would put on a, a polite facade. i say, oh, thank you very much. Thanks for the advice. Thanks. Thank you for your suggestion. But inwardly, that tore me up. I was so offended. I was honestly offended that people were encouraging me to consider going into ministry because in my thinking, there was, no, there was no fame and success to become a pastor and tell people about God and, and teach the Bible and, and help people. Like I, that, to me, I knew pastors because I was raised in a Christian home. I loved all of my pastors, but to me, they kind of seemed like weak, lame people. Just like, I just thought it was a lame thing to do with my life. Why would I want to do that? There's no recognition in becoming a pastor. So I think it's hilarious that I'm doing that right now. There's great irony in that. I'll get back to that again later. So here I am, a weak, lame pastor. There is an irony to God's calling upon your life. And I think it's because the God of the Bible uses irony to get our attention. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't be focused on ourselves and what's important to us. He has to disorient us and reorient us so that we can start paying attention to him. The irony of God is a wake-up call. 
It was actually the Apostle Paul. This is another ironic thing. The Apostle Paul was a Jesus hater and a church persecutor who was literally plucked personally out by Jesus, became a Christian, and changed thousands of probably millions upon millions of lives when you think of Paul's writings and his missionary work and his church planning work 2,000 years ago. The impact of the Apostle Paul on, the, on human history is probably something we can't even estimate. But first, Paul hated Jesus and hated Christians and tried to destroy the early church. There is irony in the calling of God, and Paul shows why. He would say later in his life to Christians living in Corinth, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, let's just be honest. Becoming a Christian is disorienting. Think about it. It's confusing. It turns you upside down. There's no easy way to say that. Let's just be honest. Following Jesus at first, and maybe for a long time, is disorienting. Not only is it disorienting, it's costly. The calling of Jesus on an individual's life is costly, I believe in part, because it requires change. And change is costly. These men, what does the text tell us? In Mark chapter 1, it tells us that these men left their occupations to follow Jesus. They weren't looking for work. They were doing pretty well as fishermen. Actually, Zebedee's boys, James and John, it tells us that they were doing so well that they had a boat. They had hired workers. So maybe they were small contractors, but they were doing well also tells us in the passage that they left their families to some extent. This isn't a negative thing. They didn't walk out and desert their families, but Jesus called them away from their families. You see that James and John leave their father Zebedee in the boat to take over and to manage the employees as they went off to follow Jesus. We know later on in this passage, uh, we find out that Peter was married. Peter had a family. Peter didn't leave his family destitute. There's evidence in the New Testament that he, he kept familial ties. So they didn't walk away from their families as though to leave them destitute. But Jesus called them, to, in some extent, to leave family life as they understood it. Okay? Now, I, it's important. We, we sh, I have to make this point. We shouldn't assume that to follow Jesus, he's going to call you to leave your house. And, and leave your home or leave your job or your occupation. We need to remember, these are men that are going to become apostles. Right? Two of 12 people who literally, through the power of Jesus, would change the world. So we can't assume that our calling should specifically look like the apostles' calling. Okay? But when you follow Jesus, something will change. Maybe many things will change. I didn't have to give up 
a family life to follow Jesus, to become a Christian. But I did have to give up some things. And here's a big one. I had to give up my pursuit of the American dream. That, that seemingly American right to be whatever you want to be, to become and to do whatever you want to do if you just believe in yourself, I had to give that up in order to follow Jesus. And I had to specifically give up my ambition to become a successful performer and musician. Because that was the American dream for me. I thought that was my right and I'll be happy and I'll be fulfilled and I'll be somebody when I get that, when I achieve that. And Jesus helped me to see if you're gonna follow me, that's something that's gonna have to change. That's something that you're gonna have to give up. And so following Jesus has cost me years of my life. It has cost me resources. It has cost me money. Following Jesus, I think, um, may have cost me some of my sanity and some of my physical health. And, and following Jesus has cost me some relationships in my life. <laughs> so you may be thinking, so like, what, what's, the, what's the good part of this? Like, why follow Jesus at all? You're not selling this very well. If you look at verse 17 in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says basically to, to these men, if you follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. He's basically saying, if you follow me, I'm going to teach you how to catch people instead of fish. Now, to the ancients, the sea was not a nice place. Uh, the sea represented chaos, danger, the unknown. You're supposed to be afraid of large bodies of water. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you come with me, I am going to teach you how to rescue people out of the chaos of life into God's mercy. I'm going to teach you how to rescue people out of God's coming judgment to judge them for their sin and rebellion against him as their creator. And, and I'm going to, through you, bring those people into the boat. Right? When a fish goes into the boat, that's bad for the fish. But what Jesus is saying, when people come into the boat, out from the chaos, into God's family, that's a good thing. Okay? And so what you see here is a basic principle of discipleship. Jesus transforms you so that through you, he can transform other people. Right? Jesus blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. Jesus invests in you as his follower so that you, by investing in others, will bring them to Christ. That's what discipleship is all about. But it requires change. And change is really costly, isn't it? I want to ask you a question at this point. I think I must have skipped a slide. There it is. Let me ask you a question. Why are people reluctant to change? Even Christians, okay? Why are people reluctant to change? Given the context of Mark chapter 1, and what we're talking about. Why is it hard for people to change? What do you think? Okay. Takes you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Comfort's a big deal to Americans.
You said something about safety, right? People are used to safety. Yeah, it's it, it, yeah. I, I think it's similar to it's similar to what Kathy said about about um, comfort. You said safety. There, there are different things, but but safety is important, right? Change forces us into a position where we may feel like we are not safe, and for some of us, a lack of safety is a real big issue. We become immobilized when we don't feel or believe we're safe. Yeah. Change represents hard work. Yeah, think of a major change in your life. You know, and, and are they always easy? Quite often change is very difficult. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know the change itself. It comes upon, comes upon us quite unexpectedly. That's very difficult when we have to deal with a change we weren't expecting and really didn't ask for. You have to abdicate your control. Yeah. Control, safety, comfort. You have to start over again. That's a really good one. Yeah. And, and, and you know that at every phase of your life. Change represents a new beginning. And we, we get used to our safety and our comfort. And change represents new beginnings. Good. Yeah. Good comments, thank you. You know, I, I think there's another, there's another issue. I think we're afraid of loss also. I think loss is a huge issue. And, and I, I think change represents loss. Loss of all the things that you just mentioned that we hold on to, comfort, and safety. Later on in Jesus's ministry, you can read about this in Mark chapter 10. Maybe we'll get to it in a couple of months. There is a, a very wealthy man who thought Jesus was the coolest thing. He really liked Jesus. He liked what Jesus had to say. Maybe he followed Jesus on Twitter. I don't know, but he thought Jesus was really neat, and he went up to Jesus and said, hey, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus, Jesus is God, so Jesus knew his heart. Jesus said, well, you know, the Ten Commandments and, you know, obey God and all that stuff. And this guy goes, yeah, I do all that stuff. I, I follow the law. Of course, not perfectly. But Jesus doesn't even go there with the guy. Jesus goes, okay, how about you give up all your money and all your possessions and give them to the poor and then come and follow me? See all my friends here? They gave up like fishing and all this other stuff and tax collecting and wacky stuff. And, and they're following me. Why don't you give up all your stuff, give it to the poor and then follow me? And Mark chapter 10 tells us that the man walked away very sad. He really liked Jesus, but he couldn't give up his wealth. Now, the obstacle wasn't his wealth. It was his love of his wealth. It was the comfort and the security that his wealth brought. It was the fear of change and a new beginning. What would happen to me if I lose this? I loved the thought of payback when I was a teenager. And then I, when I went to college, my, my goal, my personal mission statement, I didn't call it that, was basically be the best musician you can be so that you can become a success, so that people will know who you are, so that you can prove to those people who hurt you when you were younger that they didn't know what they were talking about. But that was why I wanted to be a musician. 
It wasn't even for a love of music. I just thought if I could be successful at something, and that seemed like the best bet, if I could be successful at something, they will know that they should have thought, they should have thought more of me. My whole pursuit, my whole ambition in life as a young man was payback. That's what I wanted more than anything else for people who told me I was nothing to tell me, wow, you were something. We were wrong about you. Following Jesus meant I had to lose my purpose in life. I think we're afraid of loss. And you know, it's not the little things, man. People think to become a Christian, I, you know, I got to stop saying those things and watching those things and, and going to those places and hanging out with those people. And I got to act better. I got to become a better person. I got to be more well-behaved. Jesus cares a lot about what you do and what you say and how you live your life. But that's the small stuff. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about. When you follow Jesus, he cares about the big stuff. He cares about the things in your heart that would make you say, I can't follow you because this thing that you're asking me to give up is too great for me. Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about your pride. He wants to know if you're able to give up your pride. He wants to know if you're able to give up your ambition to define yourself by what you can do and what people think of you, what you can be and what you can provide for others. That's what he's interested in you giving up. He wants you to be able to give up your desire for revenge. He wants you to be able to give up your desire to practice unforgiveness with another person. Jesus wants you to give up your apathy, your propensity to really not care about the world around you and the needs of people around you. Jesus wants you to give up your autonomy. Jesus wants you to give up the delusion in your head that you think you're in control of your life. That's the big one. Adam and Eve had an issue with autonomy, and we all do. And Jesus is wondering, would you give that up in order to follow me? So what are you afraid of losing? Something's in your mind right now. What is it? Don't tell me right now. <laughs> but there's something. Let Jesus remove it. Or, or let Jesus remove your unhealthy love of that thing. Right? He may not ask you to give up your child, but he may ask you to give up your unhealthy love for that child, your, your, your pampering, um, idolistic um, protection of that individual. Whatever it is, whatever you're afraid of losing, let Jesus take that burden off of you because you can't follow him with that thing strapped to your back. But he offers to take it off. Now, here's the thing. I, I know that this irony of the gospel of Christianity confounds us. I know Jesus disorients us, okay? I get it. I also know that it's costly to follow him, right? No joke. It's disorienting. It's costly to follow him and to change your ways and to change your life. But here's the thing. The reward is great. The cost is great, but the reward is greater, friends. 
shortly after that rich man walked away from Jesus. Um, he said this to his disciples. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, big parentheses there, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there's more irony. Jesus says, if you follow me, you get immeasurably more than you lose. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible for sinners like you and me? We're sinners, by the way. Um, and you know what sin is in this context? Sin is hoarding. Sin is hoarding what you can't keep and what you don't own. Unwilling to give it up to be the person your creator has designed you to be. Sin is hoarding. How is it possible then for spiritual hoarders like us to receive this type of reward from a perfect good God? Well, the answer is found in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul once again. Paul, talking about God, the Father, said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And you see what Paul reveals here? And here's, here's a big part of what Christianity is all about. It costs God something to reconcile humanity to himself. For God to forgive hoarders who think they can live life the way they want and think they're self-sufficient and don't want to give up the greatest thing, okay? for God to reconcile hoarders to himself, he had to pay something terrible. He had to lose something terrible, and he lost a child. He lost a son. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, God himself in human flesh, lost something immensely, cosmically profound when he hung on the cross in your place. He lost his throne. At that moment, he lost his throne from all eternity. And as a human being, he lost his life. He lost his pride. He lost his reputation. It was a horrible, it was, a, it was an absolute atrocity for someone to hang on a cross, according to the Jews and according to the Romans. It was an absolute embarrassment for someone to hang on a cross. And God himself, as a human being, hanging on a cross, that is, that is the greatest picture of loss humanity has ever known. But God endured that loss so that you, by following Christ, wouldn't have to endure the greatest loss. And that's what encourages us as Christians, always knowing, no matter what we might lose, Jesus took the greatest loss. Jesus took the greatest hit. That's the God of the Bible who's going to say, I know it's going to be hard for you to follow me. I know you're scared. 
I know what fear is, but listen, my son took the greatest loss. You will never, ever have to lose what is ultimately essential to who you are, your identity, the person I've created you to be. You'll never lose that because I gave up the greatest thing. I surrendered the greatest loss. So, yes, following Jesus is costly. I'm sorry. The good news is he promises to give you immeasurably more than you'll lose to follow him. Immeasurably more. And I I would want to say that our brother and sister here who just told us um, that they are heading out to do something wonderful overseas, they didn't talk about the cost. We didn't really ask them. But notice their focus was on the reward. Because when you live by faith, the focus no longer becomes what you lose. The focus becomes what you gain. And that's where faith comes into. We've been talking about faith a little bit every week. In this context, this is what faith is. Faith is trusting that what you lose pales in comparison to what you will gain. That's really what faith is. Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. God says, you are righteous because you believe me. You are willing to believe that what you're gonna lose, Abraham and Sarah, by following me is is nothing compared to what you will gain. And here's the reward, it's me. Time and time again in the Bible, people keep thinking, oh, the reward is this, and the reward is that. That promise is the reward. That person is the reward. That opportunity, that city, that field, that, that fiance, that job, that reputation, that's the reward. That peace and silence and forgiveness. No, God keeps saying over and over again, the reward is me. At the end of the day, you get me. I'm the reward. And faith is beginning to believe that what you get far outweighs what you lose. What will it cost you to follow Jesus who gave himself up the greatest loss so that you wouldn't have to lose everything? Now you in faith can trust him with what you may have to lose. And if you're struggling with the cost, please let me know. And we can talk about it. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Father, that we do not have to give up our lives for eternity because Jesus gave up his life on earth. I ask for faith for me and for my friends here to trust that following Jesus is far safer than trying to make this work without him. That following your son Jesus will reap the type of rewards that may not seem like much to us now. Maybe they just seem like a cheap little piece of candy. Uh, But in reality um, are the riches that we need to sustain us through this life and sustain us into eternity in your presence. Father, help us to count the cost of what it means as a church and as individuals to follow your son And please give us the faith to trust him. In his name, amen.